Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 187. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Well, what an absolute thrill to have Bill McDermott on the show today. Bill Became a small business owner at the age of 16, an experience that would shape his dynamic approach to leading people and building successful businesses. Now, the CEO of SAP, the world's largest business software company, Bill, is a respected global leader, community advocate, mentor, and innovator. He serves on the boards of directors of two innovative companies, performance apparel pioneer Under Armour and engineering software maker Ansys Incorporated. He's got a brand new book out there. I tell you, this is one of the best ones I've come across in a long time. It's called Winner's Dream, and I'm so excited to have him on the show Bill, welcome to Dose of Leadership. Thank you so much, Richard. I'm psyched to be here. Well, great timing. You know, I saw the book come out a, f- a few weeks ago, and and uh, when I reached out to have you come on the show, I was so excited because we were talking a little bit before the uh, recording that I was trying to put my finger on. There's something different about this book, and um, you were scheduled to come on earlier in the week, but you couldn't get away from the book signing. You had so many people just wanting to, to, to meet you and sign your book. Congratulations on the success of the book first and foremost. But again, tell me a little bit about the genesis of what, what prompted you to write uh, Winner's Dream. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor, and the reception to the book has been overwhelming. So for everybody that's loved the book, thank you. Uh, you know, I was going to high schools and universities talking to young people about their dreams and what they're trying to do with their lives, and I realized that with all their education and their pedigree, they just needed real-life stories and I tried to give them a front row seat to how I lived it as opposed to talking to them or lecturing down to them. So it was always in a really authentic, open conversation. And they said, you got to write a book. you got to write a book. And uh, lo and behold, I finally got, you know, the, the, the passion to really get into the book. And that's when I wrote it. You know, one thing I like about it, is, and especially when you pick up the book and you, and you really start reading it, you see the kind of the humble, authentic beginnings you come from. Talk to me a little bit about that. Um, and uh, I usually ask people at the beginning who are your heroes are, but already from the get-go, I knew it was your, was your mother and your and your father played a huge influence. But uh, talk a little bit about your your kind of humble, authentic beginnings. Yeah, I'm the oldest of four kids, and my mom had me when she was 18. My dad was 21, and we uh, are working-class people, and uh, you know, came from places like Flushing, New York, and. Babylon and Brentwood and Amityville, Long Island, and lived in apartment to apartment like many people, and always had a high appreciation for work. And as a young kid, I worked uh, running the paper route routine and so forth. And ultimately, I ended up trading in three part-time jobs at a restaurant finest supermarket in the town of Amityville for my own delicatessen business. And I tell the story in the book on the importance of work and, and the power of work because it can liberate you and give you a chance at success in this country. And if you like, you know, starting the deli at 
uh, at 16 years old with 5,500 notes, 7,000 with interest means you pay back the loan in a year or you're out of business kind of gave me a, a real firsthand view of what it was like to run a company early on. You know, and I love the fact that you talk about early on too, that your parents gave you the permission to dream big. And that is so critical. I, a lot of times as we've, I've talked to people and as, as I've really gotten involved in, in group coaching and talking to people, you never realize and being a parent myself, how much influence you actually have over your kids, that awareness, even something innocuous can change a kid's life forever. So I think it's great that your parents early on, you know, kind of gave you, as you put it, that permission to dream big. Do you think without that, you don't think, I mean, is that a main reason why you're at where you're at today? Well, I think the idea of, of my personality was just really to want it more. You know, in the early yeah. days, you want to make a few bucks so you can, you know, start to, to get a little bit of personal freedom and, and obviously give some back too. Um, but in the delicatessen, you know, I realized that it was a great opportunity to really trade in three-time jobs and kind of get a life and focus on one thing. And, you know, I had a good relationship with the suppliers, so they gave me the first order on consignment. And I knew the customers, you know, there were the senior citizens that wanted to have things delivered. There were the blue-collar workers that were rich on Friday and broke by Sunday morning. I could relate to that. That's how we lived. And I gave them credit. And then there was the high school kids that I had to get to walk, uh, walk past 7-Eleven a block and a half, so we built them a video game room and treated them like adults. I couldn't believe how they were lined up outside of 7-Eleven 40 at a time with only four in the store. One day I asked them, why are you all lined up outside the store? And they said, well, they think we're going to take things. So I said, come on down to my store, and I let them all in and treated them like adults. And one time a kid said to me, you know, when we want to have good food, play video games, and be treated well, we want to come here. And when we want to steal stuff, we go to 7-Eleven. So... <laughs> I learned early on that if you have a, a passion for the customer and you treat people well with great manners, they'll do the same for you. You know, and on the surface when you say that, it makes such perfect common sense, but but we, it escapes us. And, and couple that too, the thing that I think you're really good at and you talk a lot about in your book is this, this idea of having this kind of the emotional intelligence to be empathetic towards other human beings. I mean, without empathy, I think I mean that drives a lot of SAP success today, wouldn't you agree? I absolutely do. One of the things I've always said, uh, leaders will be forgiven for their mistakes. We all make them. But the people will never forgive you for a lack of authenticity or a bad strategy. So what we try to do is create a vision to help the world run better and improve people's lives. And that became the enduring cause by which everyone focuses their purpose and their passion in the company. And, of course, by doing so, you can make great products and provide wonderful services that moves the world forward. And all the people feel that they're in service to a dream as opposed to a job. Well, so what, how do you think, especially when, uh, um, when you look at enterprise-level leadership, and this has is, is always amazed me, you know, and I've worked for large companies that are enterprise-level, and it's so complicated, so bureaucratic. Uh, and when we talk about things like empathy or simplicity, sometimes you get hit with the resistance like, well, it's just not even possible. You see, because with this large size, that bureaucracy, that lack of empathy, the the mandatory processes, the regulations, that's just part of the game. What is your take on that? The most important thing we can do is always keep our eye on the customer and have enormous empathy for the customer and the user of your technology. And if everything you do is in service to that one simple objective. Everything gets, well, simple. For example, today's organizations have way too many management layers. Right. Managers are way removed from the customer. 
too many managers are bureaucrats. They're constantly in their office doing email and looking at spreadsheets. They're reporting the news up as opposed to being on the front line helping the people get the job done. Therefore, I think we have too many layers of management and there's too much uh, clogging up the system. We have to get lean in these companies and really get focused and determined around delivering great products and services to the customer and recognizing that the people on the front lines need air cover from their leaders. They don't need to be left out there alone trying to figure things out. So leaders that are relevant, they're on the front line, they're either you know, making great products or selling great products or being in front of the customer to help understand what the next great product should be. These are the leaders that will run companies in the future, the ones that are really content to report the news and hide behind the scenes. They're not going to make it in the new world. What about accountability? One thing I talk about a lot, and I get a lot of feedback, people, how do you, you know, it just seems like everywhere we look, and it seems like things are coming apart at the seams. And what drives me crazy, and I'll scream at the TV, or I'll ske- there'll be one failure after another, even in organizations, like no one's being held accountable. You talk about accountability a lot. How do, how do you instill this sense of accountability in such a large organization? Well, the main thing is with accountability is you have to first make sure leaders understand that they're not just empowered to make decisions and actually empowered to get things done. It's a firm expectation, and you'll hold them accountable for doing so. In many companies, you'll find that decisions don't get made and things just keep getting worse because no one's making the call. And a lot of organizations want to upwardly delegate every decision to the highest levels of management, which is the absolute wrong thing to do. So what I try to do is push the empowerment down as close as you possibly can to the customer and insist that managers are confident enough to make the call and have the courage to make the decision. By not making decisions, you complicate things and you elongate value to the customer, which is completely unacceptable. And yes, those managers must be held to account for not making the call. I love that you're singing music to my ears. I mean, one of the big things is pushing that kind of decentralized decision-making down to the absolute lowest level. But at the same time, understanding when you do that, you're still accountable for the decisions that those people make. That that combination is so powerful. I wish more people would see that. It's so true. The, you know, pushing decisions up some hierarchical chain is only going to breed stagnation and mediocrity. So uh, I love that you said that. The other thing is I think leaders have totally forgotten the power of pageantry. You know, it's very important not just to have a vision. You know, nobody gets out of bed in the morning to win the silver. Not only to go for audacious goals and get everybody to align to her or his personal goal in line with the organizational goal, but at the same time, when goals are hit, people are so busy being busy that they forgot to celebrate the fact that the people did something really great, and that should be celebrated. And I call this in the book the power of pageantry, the idea of setting audacious goals and dreams, actually aligning an exceptional plan to hit them, and then lavishly celebrating with the people. So it is important to recognize that not only did we do something special, but by celebrating an unforgettable victory, you can't wait to do it again. I love I love that. And what, what about kind of combined with that, when you get up into um, the levels that you're at, again, enterprise level leadership, and one of the biggest kind of deficits, it seems, or the biggest problems that has just been uh, plaguing businesses for a long time is this idea of of strategic planning and strategic execution, the gap between the two. How do you kind of combine those two? How do you, 
have that bold strategic vision it's, and it's it's so great and fun to dream big but how do you what is what do you think is critical to to making it put into action in the book i i, I talk about this concept of doubling it so in 2010 when i became co-ceo the first thing i did is say okay now it's time to double the size of the company and then the question becomes how quickly can we double the size of the company and in that case, I chose a five-year time horizon to literally take what had been done in the prior 38 years and double it in five years. And then you do that around a purpose and an unbelievable, audacious goal, but you get everybody involved in the innovation cycle. For example, in that era, we were number one in business applications and analytics in the world. We were participating in a $110 billion U.S. dollar addressable market, which was a great business. But the world was going mobile, it was going cloud, all the big data from the Internet of Things needed to now be put in main memory. We invented something called SAP HANA, and we realized that business between companies, not just within companies, in a business network would be the next big idea. So we wanted to be the Facebook of the business network and the Google of the enterprise by managing information in real time. Well, this now took us towards a half a trillion U.S. dollar addressable market. So just by stretching our imaginations, we had become five times bigger thinkers than we used to be. And then you put an unbelievable plan together, and lo and behold, you know, you get 65, 66,000 people in the pitch to help you, and great things can happen. Yeah, so is most of your energy, you know, is especially at your level, um, like when you became, you talk about your book when you came uh, co-CEO, CEO, um, and you kind of laid out your strategy, you're excited to, to kind of lay out your strategy, you didn't give a lot of details. And that's by design, right? I mean, because your job as as a high-level leader is to constantly just communicate the outcomes and the intent. Is that correct? And then kind of leave the details to to the people more on the front lines, if you will, if I can simplify it. Is that a, a good way to put it? There's there's a couple of ways I, I would I would put it. Um, you know, Richard, one one way is you have to make sure your top leaders actually even know what the strategy is. Right. The first thing I did is I took all 250 of the top leaders in the company, I took them to Germany, I gave them the strategy, I role modeled it, and then I made sure they were comfortable in going into casual coffee corners and pitching it to the employees simply at coffee corners before they went back to their respective countries to pitch it to their people that, you know, reported into them. And what I learned is a lot of senior people don't feel comfortable talking about their own strategy, right. and some don't even feel comfortable talking to their employees. Um, so it's a very interesting dynamic. So you have to make sure you inspect that your top people get it. So when they go back to cascade it, the message is crystal clear by the time it gets down to everybody in the organization. I call this everybody needs to know what to do. Um, and then, of course, you know, when you put the bold plan out there, you have to think through the mathematics and the fact that it's realistic. It's going to be a difficult stretch, but yet mathematically, based upon your research and your beliefs, it's achievable. You never want to give the people something that they can't achieve, but then sort of let their imaginations come into play and let them think through the operating details on how they can tie the knot and make it happen because they have to have ownership for it and believe in it so much that they can't wait to get out there and execute the plan. Oh, I love that you said that. It's so refreshing to hear from someone at your level because it's so true. And I want to emphasize that point again because it's so critical and I think it's so missed in so many organizations, large and small, that what you were doing, you were maniacally 
uh, spending your energy with you and your and your top leaders on communicating the vision. You weren't sitting in a room coming up with detailed plans and detailed uh, timelines. You were spending all of your energy and focus on communicating the vision, right? Am I getting that right? Absolutely. Anything worth communicating is almost always under-communicated. Yeah. So you have to spend an enormous amount of your time over-communicating every aspect of your plan and make sure everyone in the organization can recite it as good as you, which means most plans should be so clear you could write them on the back of a napkin. I'm always amazed at these strategy documents and long uh, PowerPoint slides that executives hang on portals that nobody understands that are a total waste of time because people can't recite it in an elevator or at a bar. And it's got to be so simple that everybody knows what to do. Yeah, and there's the rub, the simplicity, which you talk about a lot. And, and again, one of the things I love about you is is this this kind of um, passion about simplicity. But that takes a lot of hard work, does it not? I mean, just because it's simple doesn't mean it's not easy to get to that point. What is your thoughts on that? Michelangelo once said the ultimate sophistication is simplicity. Simplicity is really hard. Yeah. If you look at the greatest artists in the world, the best athletes, the best leaders, they put so much into what it is they do for a profession. So it's perfect that that sophistication, that drive, the elegance, the complexity and all that can not possibly be overstated. Yet when you take the message to the people, you've got to have thought it through and condense it into such a simple format that anybody can understand it. So actually, simplicity is the greatest form of sophistication. Yet... A lot of insecure leaders feel that they have to use fancy words, they have to have lots of content and material, and in the end, what they actually did is they took something that could have been relatively simple, they complicated it, and therefore failed. Yeah, it's the whole idea of playing office, I think, is the way you put it, right? Where we come in and I wow you with my PowerPoint, my my business vernacular, and and kind of beat you down with uh, innocuous details to, to make you think we're accomplishing something when we're really not. Yeah, we have a rule, you know, you can't play office. I have no interest in PowerPoint slides. I actually just want to have a conversation with somebody that knows their business and can teach me about their business, and we can talk about what they're trying to get done and how I can help them, and perhaps they can help me. And these happen in honest, open communications. And when things are simple, everybody comes in and they've already thought through the dynamics. There's no real reason to look at slides and cartoons. We just need to start talking to each other again in business. Ah. Love it. Give me goosebumps when I hear that. I wish, I wish, what, I guess, let me turn it in. If you, a lot of listeners out there, they may be middle level managers, supervisors, they're kind of caught in this kind of bureaucratic morass. Maybe some of these, um, everywhere we look, we're chasing KPIs, we're chasing spreadsheets to fill some innocuous report to make something from green turn to red on the, the dynamic, you know, KPI board, whatever we're trying to do. What would advice would you give to those middle level leaders? Um, and on how they can best affect change kind of in the, in the middle of that morass. They're not at the top, they're not at the bottom, they're right there in the middle, I think, is which is one of the most difficult positions. Yeah, I, you know, I think the bottom line is, you know, we started out in our younger years humble and hungry, and I think we need to bring a sense of humility to the equation. When I went into Puerto Rico and they were number 64 out of 64, 
meaning in the book I tell the story how they were the worst performing operation in Xerox. And we took them to number one. I had a theme that was real simple, which is the people speak and I obey. So I spent the first two weeks reading Spanish for gringos and learning a little bit about the language and listening to the people. And what I found just by listening to the people was all the answers. They basically wanted three simple things. One is they wanted a vision of where we were going. Two, they wanted to be inspired when they showed up at the office. These offices shouldn't be like prison cells, yet many of them are. And three, interestingly, they wanted their holiday party back because the prior guy was a cost cutter and took away the Christmas party. So I basically said, okay, if you had to envision the most audacious Christmas party you've ever experienced in your life, what would it be like? And they said, well, we would have Hilbertito Santa Rosa, who was the number one salsa singer and band director in Puerto Rico, play for us at the El San Juan Hotel. The next day I came back in and I said to the people, now that I've hired Hilbertito and I put a date on the calendar when he's going to play for us and I've already paid him in advance on his contract, I only ask you for one thing in kind, that we go from 64 to number one, because when we dance to Hilbertito, we want to dance as champions. Well, that year, like Seabiscuit, coming around the corner in the third quarter of the year, we climbed up to the number one spot in the month of December, and they danced as champions, number one in the entire corporation, and they did it in one year with a simple vision, an inspired environment, and the dream of dancing to Hilbertito. I got to Hilbertito somewhere around 2 a.m., and I said, look, you were so great, and the people are still so happy. I'll write you a personal check to keep playing. And he said, no, Monsignor, this is the closest I've ever been to death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great story. But they, again, I think to highlight some of the, the key points from that is you, you went down there with the sales staff that was in last place, and you just simply asked them, what is it they want? You just simply, again, going back to the empathy and listening piece and finding out what they needed. Now, some playing devil's advocate, some leaders would say, well, you know, you can't treat them like that. They're just going to take advantage of you. But I just totally disagree. I mean, I think you you proved the point that people want to do the right thing. They want to be motivated. They want to, you know, do something bigger than themselves. They want to be part of something significant. And if, as leaders, if we can lay that groundwork Man, the sky's the limit, it seems like. I think that people are just, you know, naturally programmed to want to win. Yeah. And I absolutely believe that the best leaders have one genetic um, thing in common. They have a generosity gene. Yeah. And if you can spread your generosity in a way that inspires people to want to dream and want to win, you're going to live the winner's dream. What happens to us? I mean, because, you know, when we're young, we all have these great dreams. I mean, you've obviously you, you held on to it and you look at some of the events. I mean, you know, watching um, and I, I want to go back to your mother again, especially in the beginning. And, and you saw how she responded to adversity, to crisis, um, you know, with the death in the family, with the fire, with all of these things. And then that moment where, you know, we, your father can afford the house that he wanted. I mean, those were like critical moments that are still etched in you that kind of I would say, drove you to success. Would you agree? Absolutely. Uh, I think the, you know, the part where the, the house burned down and, you know, my mom and I got my brother and sister out of the house. My dad was at work and we watched the house burn down and we're standing on the curb and we knew all we had 
was that house. There was, you know, really nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah. And she just said, you know, this isn't a bad time. This is a great time because there's nothing inside that house that's nearly as important as the things outside that house. Yeah. And she held her kids in her arms. I remember the house uh, constantly in a state of disrepair because it was in a concrete slab and how it would flood every time there was a northeast storm and we'd have four and a half feet of water across the entire downstairs of the house and just as she fixed it up, it would once again flood and she'd put statues of St. Jude outside the front door in the hopes that St. Jude, the patron of hopeless causes, could stop the water. Eventually, even St. Jude would find itself under the water. Um, but through all these, including the death of a child, she always could see the better part of what was going on, the fact that we're family and we have to stick together and we've gotten through worse and we'll get through this and things are happening for a reason. And she always had the winner's dream that things could get better. And if you just kept at it um, and you stayed true to yourself, you could be something in this world. And for that, I always have found my own passion and my own voice in hers. Yeah. It's so it's so evident with, with uh, as you highlight it in this book. I love near the end of the book when you talk about the, you know, prior to you becoming co-CEO when the global economic meltdown happened and uh, SAP was kind of uh, being faced with one of its worst. Um, I even think you guys had to lay off, uh, had, had to make some cuts, which you hadn't done in 40 plus years, right? Am I saying that right? Yeah. So talk to me a little bit through that, how in that fourth quarter, um, how you brought everything together. I mean, what were some of those elements that we've talked about here in leadership and how you kind of turned that fourth quarter around? In 2008 and 2009, as many of you listeners will recognize, you know, it was the heat of the financial crisis that hit the entire world. And the then CEO of SAP did have to make um, some tough decisions and did some right-sizing of the company. And at that time, I was running the uh, field organization of the company, and my colleague Jim was running the uh, development side of the company. And we basically said, we got to pull this company together. And we put a plan together in the fourth quarter where we brought all of our leaders together around a common cause to have the best quarter of our lives and to pull the company through this very, very difficult time. Well, lo and behold, with a lot of trust, good planning, and unbelievable execution on the part of our colleagues and all the people across the company, we had a record quarter and pulled the company through a very difficult time. Uh, lo and behold, no sooner did we do that than the other CEO was dismissed and we were brought in as the co-CEOs to run the company. So I don't know if people observed that we had the ability to work together and do magic things, if there was a unique brand of trust between us, but in any event, um, it led to one of the great co-CEO partnerships in the history of business uh, for four, four and a half years. You know, it's interesting that, um, and it's an anomaly, I can't even really think of another example where you've got an organization where you have a co-CEO, you know, you're uh, Co-CEO Jim uh, Snabe, um, what a, a unique combination. How did you feel about that? Because every, every time I've looked, it's like, wow, you've got two chiefs. How is this going to work? How does that work for SAP? Well, you know, the first thing is I'll never forget getting the call. I was in uh, Arizona on my way to our, our winter circle trip for the top performers in Hawaii when the chairman and founder of the company called me up and said the board voted unanimously to make you co-CEO. Will you do it? And I immediately said yes. Uh, after all, I had been waiting for that call all my life. 
Um, but then I thought for a second, I'm like, hey, I better ask him now who the co is, you know? Yeah. And I said, and he said, well, it's Jim. And I just said, that's perfect, you know? So the first thing is that it was the perfect match because there was an enormous level of professional courtesy and trust between us before we became co's. And that's really an important element. The other one is there was a series of co-CEOs in our culture since its original founding between the original founders and then, um, you know, three or four different sets of co-CEOs along the way. So our culture was used to it, and that balance of power worked nicely in our company. And I think that combined with just having an unmatched level of professional respect and trust for one another enabled us to do great things for the people. But here's how we worked. And here to me is the one nugget of gold, the one secret to the whole thing. We always said, we're going to have our debates, but let's have our debates behind closed doors between us. Because all we care about is the best idea has to win. And therefore, if it was Jim's idea that was better or my idea that was better, we'd simply look at each other and laugh and just say, that's the better idea. Let's go with that one. Yeah. When you have people that trust each other at that level and can have a sense of humor about finding the best idea, you're going to get it done. On the other hand, most times this wouldn't work because most times you don't have that level of trust, that self-determination between two people where all that matters is the best idea and that will both in service to SAP. Uh, that's a rare combination. Yeah, and you know, I think it's a rare combination too. I don't know much about, you know, I'd like to learn more about Jim too, but I I, I think with you, even listening to you and and reading this book and, and and doing a little bit of homework about you, you do seem like that kind of level five leader that Jim Collins talks about in Good to Great, where you have an intense intensity of will uh, and a humility about you. And I think, you know, you, you talk about your humble beginnings and, and that carries with you and this great kind of foundation that your parents gave you. But again, a sense of humility, intense personal will, but your intensity is less about you. In fact, it's, it seems like it's never about you. It's all about what's best for the company. Is that a great summation? Is that an accurate summation? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in service to the company and I've been in service to all the companies and all the teams I've been blessed to work with. You know, we will what we want. And all I do is try to guide the people to will what they should want. I think that's what good leaders do and then align the whole thing to come together around what we want, and then we make it happen. Um, but it's always, it's always the people, you know. Everybody in leadership talks a lot about leadership styles and technology and enablement of strategies, and all those things are very important. But the thing that it always comes down to, and 80% of a good leader's time, is always spent on building a great team and inspiring people to live their winner's dream. And we really, in business, need to get back to that. It's all about inspiring people to live their winner's dream. And if you can get everybody on that stack of mail, you're going to build something incredibly special. I got to tell you, it's, it's a, when I talk to people like yourself, and again, one great thing, one blessing about this show is is meeting people like yourself and talking. This sense of optimism. I mean, it is um, if if you. Don't look hard enough. You'll think the world is coming to an end. And again, in a lot of places, it seems like it's coming apart at the seams. But there are nuggets and lights of optimism. I see it in your leadership style, one that I completely aspire to. Um, but I also see it in the younger generation, the millennial generation. And I know that's something you're passionate about, too. I think I look at this um, 
kind of resurgence of entrepreneurship and leadership or being part of something bigger than themselves. I see that in the millennial generation that maybe wasn't necessarily in you and I. We're roughly the same. You're about five, six years older than me, but in our generation, what are your thoughts on that? I think this generation is the world's greatest generation. And one of the things I really love about this generation is they're brave. I think they have tremendous courage. And one of the things I especially like is they're very purpose-driven. They'll do things based upon a bigger purpose than just themselves. And I think there were prior generations that were trained, you know, it's all about uh, money and power. And this generation, I really believe it's all about purpose and courage. Yes. And they have a, a tremendous keen understanding of the digital world. And I place a great deal of emphasis on having millennial generation folks reporting to me directly and running big parts of our company. Because I think you have to get those fresh ideas and that new perspective. For example, uh, the social media aspect of running a company today cannot be overstated in its importance. You know, this generation is the only generation born into the mobile device. So they understand things at a deeper level than prior generations, and we should celebrate that. The other piece about leadership is, you know, we have to make decisions to build great companies, not for the next 60 days, but for the next 60 years. Right. And that takes a keen understanding of where technology and where the world is likely to go. And it also takes enormous courage because you're always going to be fighting the people that want the short-term um, success, the, the, the instant gratification. But in some cases, we live in a world that if you go for too much instant gratification, you'll lose the future. And good leaders are always toggling that balance, and that's why I encourage you know, myself as well as our management team to have a good balance between people that understand how to get things done today, that's how you eat, but don't miss out on the dream. You have to dream and eat to run a great company. Oh, I love it. Well said. Well, guys, this has been such a thrill for me and so much fun talking, uh, especially in its, again, refreshing and encouraging when I talk to enterprise-level leaders like yourself who, who see the common sense uh, solution. It's it's easy to understand. It's difficult to implement for the reasons that you stated, the courage, the empathy, the simplicity is not easy. It takes a lot of hard, dedicated, intentional work, but uh, I love what you do. I love Winner's Dream. I can't tell you again. You know, I read a lot of books on the show, and this one is, is definitely up there going to make it in a constant rotation for me. To, it's going to be a go-to, so I, I think it's tremendous work. How can people uh, get in touch with you or learn more about you and the book? Well, we have uh, winnersdream.org which is a, a website that I started in combination with launching the book where dreamers from all over the world are writing in with their ideas and their dreams. And it's amazing because one woman, she wrote in from India and she said, you know, I wrote, read the book 10 times in seven days and I was in a dark and depressed place, but I found out through your own raw uh, life and the authenticity by which you told the story that nothing's perfect. And I didn't have to be perfect either. And now I'm back in touch with my dream. So I really love to hear from you and winnersdream.org because we're going to do something with your dreams and we're going to create a movement. The other thing is, you know, the book is now on its sixth printing. It's a bestseller. You can get it on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anything like that. You can get it in a Kindle version or the voice. You know, the one thing that I found is, you'll love this, Richard. I actually read the whole thing myself. And I did it in 18 hours in a little studio over a railroad track. Yeah. 
uh, and it was quite an amazing experience to relive your life in 18 hours. I when I was imagine. done with it, my body was vibrating. I could wow. barely move, but it was one of the most inspiring things I've ever done, and I've gotten amazing feedback that when people listen to it, you know, they feel like we're having a one-on-one conversation because we are. I wrote it for you. I told it to you as if we were sitting down having a conversation on the couch, and now people have responded extremely positively, and I am deeply honored for that. Yeah, you're the real deal. The book's the real deal. I, I, in fact, I might even check the audio version too, being kind of a, a radio buff myself and audio. I think, I think it'd be a, a whole different experience. That, that's a neat story. Kind of last fun question. I'll have link, by the way, I'll have links to all this on the post when it gets there so e- people can easily find this. But um, kind of fun last question. If you had could have the ultimate dinner party, alive or dead, you could bring five people to this party for the just amazing night of conversation. Who would those five people be? Well, I'd bring my mother and my brother. <clears throat> I'd bring my grandfathers and my grandmother. Oh, I love it. Says a lot just by, you know, said who you would invite. And it's evident, you know, with that's uh, helped to make you the man that you are. And, and again, I, I appreciate the answer. Gosh, Bill, thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to have met you. I'm glad to have uh, had this time for this conversation. And I know my listeners got a lot out of it. Thank you very much, Richard. Great being on with you. Yeah, we'll talk again. Take care, sir. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.